Welcome to the Autism and Neurodiversity Podcast. We're here to bring you helpful information from leading experts and give you effective tools and support. I'm Jason Grigla, a licensed counselor and founder of Techie for Life, a specialized mentoring program for neurodiverse young adults. And I'm Debbie Grigla, a certified life coach. And maybe most importantly, we're also parents to our own atypical young adults. Hello and welcome to Autism and Neurodiversity with Jason and Debbie. I'm Jason and I'm going to be talking to you today about depression, what it is, what it isn't, and how it happens and how it goes away. And specifically with those who have neurodivergent brains, depression is common. Someone with autism is four times more likely to be depressed or be diagnosed with depression. And there is very little research about how much depression those who have neurodevelopmental disorders have. I think oftentimes the more severe the disability is, the less people focus on things like whether they have a diagnosis or not for something like depression. But it's even more scant research when it comes to other forms of neuro divergency, for example, ADHD, OCD, Tourette's, and anything else where the brain works differently. But we know that the rates are higher with someone who has some form of diagnosis. And so the mental health diagnosis of depression is mental health, and it is not caused by autism. Autism just makes it more likely that depression comes. And the first thing I want to talk about is what it what it is and what it isn't. Depression is not something that you have. It's a description of lacking. It's a description of lacking the chemicals in our bodies to feel good like serotonin and other endorphins. And depression is the absence of joy, pleasure, happiness, serenity, and peace. And so the first mistake we make in a culture and that I would not want you as parents to make is to think that your that you or your mentee or child has depression. You can't have depression and the danger in calling it having depression versus experiencing depression or is depressed is that you think depression is something instead of a result or a consequence. And not in a consequence in terms of punishment, but as the aftermath of things that happen. There's been a push in the last 15 years, not so much lately that I've heard, but I think the damage has already been done, that depression is nothing more than a chemical imbalance that somebody just doesn't have the chemicals they're supposed to produce. And that might account for 5% of the people that I work with who had no reason whatsoever to be depressed. One of the reasons that we have depression is definitely chemical, but what happens is something really hard happens, something negative happens, traumas, abuses, deprivations, or our own choices, or anything that makes it so that our body stops producing norepinephrine and serotonin and the other feel-good chemicals. And once our body shuts down producing those chemicals, they don't come back on their own all the time. Some of our bodies definitely have a genetic predisposition to 
once you have stopped producing feel-good chemicals, sometimes it's hard to get those factories going again. And that's when medication would be helpful. And I think medication could be helpful in any type of depression, but we'll talk more about that later. So when the body stops feeling good, that doesn't mean depression. In some cases, the death of a loved one means sadness, sorrow, and grieving. And that doesn't mean depression. It can cause depression and a state of inability to feel good when things should be feeling good. Sometimes I think I'm concerned that when someone feels bad, they assume they have depression and they need to be fixed as if we're not supposed to feel bad. We've talked about that previously in other podcasts where grieving and feeling bad is a part of life. And someone who is grieving and going through really hard struggles is typically in a state of fight or flight. Not always. Sometimes you're really healthy in your emotional sadness and you're grieving, but you still have a sense of peace and okayness. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about someone who is like someone who's a teenager in general, but even more so if you're neurodivergent and or a young adult and you're trying to transition and it's the hardest part of your your life because you're aware but not good at it and your brain is literally growing in leaps and bounds and your neural pathways in your frontal cortex and your upper brain have not caught up. We know that the brain finally hits its peak and catches up from the crazy teenage years in brain development at around 22. So as someone who's going through huge crossroads and change and challenges and awareness is more likely to be depressed. So teenagers and young adults, and then oftentimes depression stays. And that's hard. One of the ways they know someone's depressed is because even when life should be happy, even when everything's going well, they still can't seem to feel good about the good things. It's like their body has gone from fight or flight into I quit mode, despair, hopelessness, lack of energy, those types of things. I want to go back to culture and society. We've, we've come to a place in mental health where we don't want to own any of the decisions that are going on because nobody wants to judge and judgment is not good. I don't like it, but with assessment, we are definitely trying to figure out how did you get here? And is the good news would be if you were the problem, if you were depressed because of how you are acting, choosing to think choices that you've made, then I would love that because it means you are the problem and then you can be the solution. It's much harder when someone is autistic or different and they can't necessarily fix the problem and they have no control. So I, I like it when someone is the problem and that's the bad news because then the good news is then we can, we can change it. So the next, the next thing is that when society says, okay, you have depression, which isn't really accurate because you can't have anything. Depression is the lack of when you have depression, we need to fix it. Okay, we do medication and we do counseling and that will fix your negative feelings. That will fix your despair. It will fix your life scenario. It's almost like people go to counselors anymore to make themselves feel better, not to learn how to change their lives. And counseling was never meant to be the cure. Counseling was meant to give you the cure. So for 
young adults or teenagers who are struggling but don't have much insight, like a lot of autists, for example, I don't recommend a lot of counseling. I recommend the parents do a lot of counseling, not because they're the problem, but because they deserve the help in managing an environment and a difficult situation so that they can be there long term to mentor um, their loved one. Now, if, we, if counseling is going to happen, I'll just cover it right now, counseling and medications. Counseling needs to be something that's more directive. You could talk to the therapist about solution-focused therapies. You could talk to them about motivational counsel or motivational interviewing. You could talk to them about a coaching model and let them know that we absolutely want you to connect as much as possible with our loved one that you will be seeing in therapy so that you have a relationship of influence. And therapy in general is set up not to connect. And yet, ironically, research shows that the number one factor in success in therapy is how the client relates to the therapist, not how smart they are, not which techniques they use, but did my therapist connect with me and have genuine compassion and interest in me? Did I like them? Did they like me? Did I feel safe? Those were way more important. So make sure that that's a connection and a relational connection. It, in some ways, because the more developmentally disabled someone is, the less insight they're going to have. Even someone with ADHD that's really smart, their brain's shooting all over the place. And it's hard for them, especially when they're in a situation where they might have heightened emotional awareness and chemicals pumping through the brain of fight or flight, they're going to have a hard time focusing to have insight and to see things through. So, you know, counseling can be helpful, but depression is a mental health issue, not an autistic issue. And so they are separate worlds. What I think works is this shift that I've already alluded to where we stop thinking about someone having depression and we think of depression as a result and a consequence um, not a punishment consequence where you deserved it, but just what happens, the natural, the natural result of, number one, first and foremost, not having their needs met. And that doesn't mean need twos. It means I don't have friends. That is by far the most common reason that neuroatypicals have depression, in my opinion, is they are lonely. Two, they don't have touch. Most of them are touch deprived. I like massages. For anyone who is depressed and lonely and doesn't have attachments, at least have them find a nurturing therapist, that physical therapist, uh, um, excuse me, a massage therapist that they can get weekly or every other week physical touch because that does add a huge boost of positive chemicals to the body. Um, the second reason is they don't exercise very well. And the consequence is your body becomes sluggish. Your systems aren't washed out and cleaned. And so loneliness and lack of exercise are huge factors in depression and cause depression. So the next thing is anxiety. If your loved one really does care and wants to do everything well and can't or has a really hard time with it, they are eventually going to tire of being in the fight or flight mind. It's like running a sprint and not being able to finish the marathon. Fight or flight is anxiety. And anxiety and depression are closely related siblings. 
they always go together. If you're anxious and fear-based and in your lower brain because you're in crises, because you recognize people aren't happy with you, because you recognize your needs aren't met, because you recognize your timeline is different. For example, someone who has level one autism or previously Asperger's, they are more likely to be depressed than someone who has level two or level three autism. I think a large part of that is awareness and savvy. The closer they get to understanding all their differences, even though they have the differences, the harder it is for them. And so that's a pretty sad state. If they really want friends and need friends and know it and they suck at it, that's going to be really depressing and cause despair and hopelessness. Someone with level two or three autism, they might still be lonely, but they're not going to add to it the layers of shame and guilt. They'll just know that they're lonely and they'll be angry, maybe act out. Um, depression in autism specifically can look like a lot of things. It can look like anger, which I, I kind of like, just so you know, anger means they're still fighting. They haven't given up and I'm not, I'm not worried about suicide. And we're going to talk about suicide in the next episode specifically. So we're not going to talk about suicide today. Um, that will come next. And I wanted to do this, this discussion on depression first. So someone who gets overly anxious in their lower brain cannot sustain that level of intensity. And eventually their brain shuts down and says too much, too much. Stop being in this intense manic fight or flight state. Go into quiet mode, shut down mode, quit mode, give up mode. And then they sink into a place of just languishing. And oftentimes we describe that as comfortably miserable where they they stop trying and they've been knocked on the mat so many times emotionally, socially, physically, performatively that they just quit. And I, I don't blame them. It's really hard to have expectations that are unrealistic. So if depression comes from too much anxiety or unmet needs or if someone has really hard experiences and they're not good at processing it, which is also common with people with neurodevelopmental disorders, they struggle with a death of a loved one more than typicals. Maybe they don't know how to process grief. And so they end up getting stuck in just the lost place and the hopeless place. And after a while that just becomes depression as the body learns to not produce chemicals or, or the person struggling with depression just decides it's not worth getting my hopes up. I'm going to quit trying to attach to people and I'm going to push people away. We know that attachment is a huge issue in, in dis developmental disabilities. And that is so sad because if anyone deserves it, in my opinion, it's those who have really honest personalities without guile. Yes, they lie sometimes. Yes, they have habits. But typically, the there's not the sophistication of manipulation there that a neurotypical would have, and, and the hearts are genuine, and typically they are childlike in many ways compared to their peers, and in some ways they've been protected from a lot of crap. And I, I love that about the population I work with, and I know that's generalized. That doesn't mean that their temper tantrums aren't destructive and that they're hard that they're not hard. It just means, man, you if you can 
get them to a place where they soften and connect, they can do that often way better than a neurotypical can who has stronger walls and stronger rigidity and, and pride and protections maybe. Anyway, we've talked about depression. I want to talk about cures. If depression is a result of lack of needs, then let's find a way to get their needs met. That's the first place to start. And the sad part is for typicals, depression comes when they are not accepted by their peers and neurotypicals aren't any different. The majority of studies on depression are done with neurotypical brains. Very little has been done with neurodevelopmental disabilities, like I mentioned. So we don't know exactly how depression works. We don't know how medications work. We don't know how counseling is working. We know that counseling is not nearly as effective. We know that some medications, SSRIs, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, we know that those have more side effects with neurodivergent populations because the studies and the research were fitted to the middle of the bell curve and not those who lay on the lay on the outsides, not the outliers. And so someone who takes something like escitalopram or um, Prozac, they could have manic side effects, which is actually one of the one of the more common side effects with someone who is autistic and tries to take an antidepressant. I don't say give up on antidepressants. I think all the help you can get to not shoot yourself in the foot and to give you a boost through the hard times, but medication has never been the cure. It's been a support. It's been a crutch while you're learning to walk again. It's been a cast on the leg while the leg heals. It is not the solution. The solution is healing the leg and learning to walk. And I think a good, a good counselor can help them heal and be okay. But like I said before, it's more about the relationship. So I don't dislike meds and counseling. I just think that it's those are those are approaching the symptom. It's like the the car has already gone into flames and broken and now we're going to try to put out the fire that doesn't repair the car that just puts out the fire. So going back to depression, I'm more worried about you as the caretaker's depression first. I think it's critical that we as the mentors, parents, coaches, therapists, teachers, that we keep our mental health good because that absolutely rubs off onto the neurodivergent teens and young adults that we work with. If we're depressed, we're not, we're not there for them. And if we're overly anxious, we send them into anxiety. So getting yourself into a good place first is really important. And I like counseling for that. I like bibliotherapy, which is reading books. I like podcast therapy, which is like listening to this podcast and others. And then we can help manage um, the anxiety and the depression of the, those that we are working with and that we love. So if, ang if anxiety means that we're thinking and that we care, that's a good thing. When someone is so neurodevelopmentally disabled that they don't have anxiety, it means they're really not developmentally aware enough to get it. They're not really in the game. I like that someone's anxious because of social situations because it means they value the social situations. It means they value relationships. 
We know that teens and young adults need their peers' acceptance to know that they're good enough. Parents don't cut it anymore. Finding a peer group, finding a place where they can belong is huge. I can't tell you how many students have come to our school with depression and anxiety being at the forefront of their distress. And as soon as they come and have a place where they belong that is safe, consistent, they lose the depression and they lose the anxiety. And they didn't really lose that. What they did was they started feeling better. They started feeling safer. They started feeling okay. And once they're out of their depression and anxiety and out of their lower brain fight or flight mode, they get into their higher brain and that's when development starts to happen. And that's when that's when depression gets a nail put into the coffin, you know, that final nail. If they're developing and creating evidences that they're enough, not just because they belong, but now because I'm moving forward, which is a requirement of our brains to feel good, by the way. Anyone who thinks they're happy doing nothing is actually not happy. Uh, they might be distracted. They might be titillated in the moment by drugs, sex, alcohol, food, video games, but that is not happy. So when they have their basic needs met, then if depression doesn't resolve itself, that's when counseling can help. Um, I think medication can help before that. I think medication can help for the plan to do those things as well. I want you to know that they are not depressed or anxious because they have a neurodevelopmental disorder. I think they have depression because they're not getting their needs met. Their life isn't going well. Things are harder for them than the general population because of their developmental disability. But I don't think it's, I don't think you can say they're depressed because I know a lot of people that are, have, they have developmental disorders. They, they are autistics or ADHD. OCD, and they're the happiest people I know because of their attitude, because of their thinking patterns, because of their hopefulness. Oftentimes, it's because they can let water roll off their back like a duck when bad things happen. I like that, actually. M most of the people we work with, they can forgive very quickly and move on. Humor brings them out of sadness very quickly. If you, if you just relate to them, if you can connect with them, um, that's the best thing. There was a movie a couple of years back called Warm Bodies, and it's a zombie apocalypse movie, not a horror movie. It's actually a romance. And the cure for zombieism was connection. And the end credits have all the, the people, the typicals, those who aren't zombies, trying to connect with the zombies and in one scene someone's playing catch in a field and they throw the ball to the zombie and it hits the zombie in the face and he grunts but you know that he's starting to connect with the person and it's the funniest real scene that i've seen that that made me made me think of parallels to our worlds in life where people have decided to give up on relationships and themselves and the best way to bring them back is to attach, connect, interact, and have belonging. I do think that's the best cure for depression if it works. And if it doesn't work alone, that's fine. As a society, I really hope we don't keep going to medication and counseling as the cure. 
those are tools and supports to help find the cure, which is to meet our basic needs for safety, security, consistency, belonging, evolvement, development, achievements, evidences that we're enough, that sort of thing. I know it's not easy. Don't give up. Getting through the hard teen and young adult years is the hard part. Surviving to the mid-20s is the goal. And even then, it doesn't mean it's over. It just means most of the time it gets easier, gets better. And anyway, thank you for all that you do. If you need help with depression, get it. That's okay. If your loved one is depressed, start looking to, to create an environment where they get their needs met. And if that means seeing a good counselor just for the support, great. If they can actually get good information from it, great. Um, maximize success, absolutely, for medication. But those are not going to fix the problem. You can medicate and therapize all day long. And if their basic needs aren't met, they're not going to get undepressed. All right, next time I visit, we're going to talk about suicide and what that looks like and what it doesn't. So we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Autism and Neurodiversity with Jason and Debbie. If you want to learn more about our work, come visit us at jasondebbie.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-D-E-B-B-I-E.com. E.com.